All right, it is good to see all of you, those of you who I can't see, but I'm also going to welcome those, uh, those of you I can see, I'm also going to welcome those I can't, and those are folks who are listening online today or, or perhaps on our, in our classic service or on our moon campus, or those of you here in the room, for all of you, wherever you find yourself, I have a question for you. Are you ready for God's Word? All right, I love that. I love that. And I'm ready to uh, bring it as well, what uh, God has been laying on my heart as it relates to the passage that we're looking at. But as we jump into this, I've got a question for you, and it is this. Do you ever find yourself kind of asking or saying to yourself, that just doesn't make sense? If you ever do that, that makes sense, (laughs) because there are things in our world that just don't make sense. Some of those things, like I was thinking about this, and uh, one of the things that doesn't make sense is why there are certain foods we only will eat at certain meals. Like, why don't we drink more orange juice for dinner or have ice cream for breakfast? And why do we have kale for any meal? I mean, these are things that just don't make sense. Or why is it that the dentist waits until he or she puts their fingers in your mouth to ask you a question? That just doesn't make sense, but it happens all the time. Or why is it that there's a local pizza shop, they do good pizza, but they close on the weekends at 8 o'clock in the evening? I didn't even realize people ordered pizza before 8 o'clock in the evening on the weekend. But there you have it. It doesn't make sense, though. Or here's one. Why is it that God doesn't seem very involved in our world a lot of the time? That doesn't make sense. And how do you make sense of the amount that he is involved or the amount that he is not involved? I think these are questions that are on our mind, and if they're on your mind, then you're certainly not alone. It's something that comes up in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is Romans 11. Open up your Bible. Open up your Scripture journal. Find Romans 11 somehow. Google it. Whatever you need to do to find Romans 11 because there's a lot here. We're going to make our way through a lot of verses, and so it'll help you to have it open in your lap. We encourage you certainly to be bringing your Bible week by week or the Scripture journal that you have that has the text of the Scripture in there, just some way to access the text. It's very important to have the Bible open in front of you as we look at this because that's what we do week by week by week. We just make our way through the text. And Romans chapter 11 is where we have come today. Romans 11 is an interesting chapter of the Bible. It comes kind of right at the conclusion of a few very challenging chapters in Romans. And we've been navigating our way through these over the last few weeks. And we come today to Romans chapter 11. Prior to that, the beginning of Romans, kind of all the way up through Romans 8, Paul is talking about, Paul's our author, the Apostle Paul. Paul is talking about all these sort of grand things like the gospel and like grace and like faith and uh, how we have the blessing of the, the cross that Jesus went to on our behalf to take our sin out of the way that we might be justified and, and redeemed and all these great theological terms. And then there's the resurrection of Jesus that proves he has the power to do what he says that he will do. And then, and then picking up in Romans chapter 12 and going to the end of Romans, which we're going to be getting to very, very soon, There you see that he's talking about all of these practical applications of the things that are true about the gospel and true about grace and what that means for our lives and how we can can move our way forward and all this practical helps and uh, we're going to love it when we get to that. But right in between, there's there's Romans 9 through 11, which are, are very challenging chapters. And if you've been with us, you've seen some of the challenges that come up 
in it. And uh, we're going to be kind of wrapping up or getting right toward the end of this section here today. And I'm looking forward to taking you through it, but there are some challenges that come up in it. And here what we see is that things get pretty heavy and Paul is addressing some difficult issues and doubts and, and questions that come up. That's what Romans 11 is really all about. Now it can be challenging, but I don't want to discourage you as we get into it because it's also incredibly helpful to understand where we are and what God's doing in the big picture. And uh, that's what we're going to be thinking about as we continue on in the sermon series. Romans, grace changes everything, is, is what we have been studying in these, in these weeks. In Romans 8, Paul is writing to the Roman church about wonderful promises that are theirs, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And these are, are grand, beautiful ideas, but, but Paul knows in his mind, even as he's been bringing the beauty of all of that, that in the in the minds of the people who are reading this that he's writing to there in the, the Roman church and in ancient Rome, it's like he knows there's got to be some bells going off in their mind. There have to be some questions that are coming to them as he writes this and as they read it. And that is, well, well, what about the Jews? All right, If all of these things are true, then why is it that so many Jews have fallen away, that they're not experiencing the fullness of all of these promises of God? Does that mean that God has failed. And Paul knows that this is on people's minds, and, and so he wants to go ahead and address it. And, and we're going to do that same thing. And what we're calling this today is making sense of God's plan. Making sense of God's plan. What is it that he's actually doing? And it's good that Paul dives into this because it's only natural for us to ask, if God failed them and didn't get what he promised accomplished for them, then can we have any more confidence that he's going to accomplish what he says or what he promises to us? It's a good question. It's one that should be on our mind. And Romans chapter 11 steps in and offers us some perspective on this idea. So we're going to dig into this. And there are several truths that we're going to see that Paul writes in this chapter. We're going to take a look at each one of them because just as they were valuable for Paul's original readers, they're they speak to our circumstance for us today and what we might come to understand. So there's, there are several that I want to walk us through, four of them actually. And the first of those is this. It's that God never forgets a promise. This is the first truth when we think about making sense of God's plan. Number one for your outline, God never forgets a promise. You can tell that Paul is sensitive to what his readers must be thinking because he goes ahead and asks this question on their behalf. They're not there to ask the question. He's like, you must be thinking this. And so he says, let me just get started with what may, must be on your mind. Verse 1 says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Good question, based on all of those things we just talked about. All these promises given, not all of them are in that promise or by living by that promise. Has God rejected his people? It's a clear answer right away, by no means. It's clear that Paul's made up his mind. But it would be natural for us to ask, well, is that just, well, Paul's an apostle. That's, he's supposed to give that answer. And Paul says, no, 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 I'm, this is not just blind faith. I have some rationale for this. And so he goes on to give some arguments right away in this text. He gives us some proofs for the things that he is saying to say that, well, God is indeed at work behind the scenes and he does not forget a promise. And so he gives some. Let me give them to you. The first proof has to do with Paul himself. Verse 1 continues. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of 
Benjamin. Paul's saying it's obvious that God has effectively saved some of Israel because he says, I'm an Israelite, and God clearly has brought salvation to me. And we see that in Acts chapter 9. If you want to read about it, it's all there. It's spectacular. It's uh, off the charts in terms of what God does with Saul turned Paul, and uh, you can see it there. So Paul himself is an argument. He's an Israelite. God has done a work in me. goes on. Another proof is or has to do with election. This comes at the beginning of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, whom he elected, essentially is what he's saying. Many times now, Paul has addressed this idea that God has chosen some people for salvation. That's been a big part of what we've seen all the way through Romans to this point. Paul is saying that God is going to see that process through to completion, that it's not going to fail. And if there's any confusion about whether or not he's been faithful to that promise, what we need to understand is the fact that, yes, there are some who did not walk in that or enter into that because they were resting in the wrong thing to provide salvation. And God has not brought election to those who were resting in their own efforts and leaning toward the law in doing and earning their own salvation effectively is what he's saying. These are ones, this argument goes, that, well, if he's bringing in all of Israel, well, then anyone who's a descendant of an Israelite must be one who's in faith, but that's never what he was talking about from the beginning. The promise was never about physical heritage. It was always about spiritual faith, and all who believed were received. Paul speaks about others who've turned their back on God, and he talks about a hardening of their hearts. And verses 7 to 10, if you read through that, it'll tell you about those and some of the consequences of what is happening there. But here in our context, or right now in these verses, Paul's point is that God's promise never fails. Then he goes on. There's a third proof that he gives for how he knows that this is true, and it has to do with Elijah. Paul draws on some of his story at the end of verse 2. says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel, <clears throat> saying this, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, Paul asks. He goes on, here's what he said. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, Two, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. As Elijah looked around him, it appeared as though he was all alone. That there was nobody else, that everybody else had bailed on God, and that he alone was the last one who was left. That was Elijah's perspective. Paul simply says to the people he's writing to that he was wrong that indeed there was a remnant that God had provided and has sustained so that they were also there. They had not given in to Baal in any way themselves, but they were certainly there, despite the wickedness of the culture at that time. And I'm wondering, do you ever feel like Elijah? Do you ever kind of look around you and you see all of the things that are transpiring in the world and how wicked a culture has gotten and think, you know what? I'm all alone in this. Now, maybe you don't think you're absolutely alone like Elijah thought he was, but certainly would take on a perspective that seems to be saying, you know what, as I look at the things that are happening around me, as I look at the things that are happening in our America, it comes to the place where I kind of wonder how many people are still with me in faith. 
I mean, how many people are still really holding up the, the biblical values that I hold for myself? It seems like fewer and fewer people. It seems like it's diminishing all around me. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel kind of like Elijah feels here? Or maybe it's the dying out of hope that there can be real change when it comes to justice or when it comes to righteousness or when it comes to reconciliation actually happening in our world. Can these things actually transpire any longer? Well, friend, take heart, Elijah. Take heart. God's not done. You're not alone. God's still on the throne. There's no power that can stand against Him. He's carrying on to completion the, the work that He has begun in you. He's going to see that through. We might feel like Elijah, but he's saying, no, 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 that's not the circumstance you're in. I know there are a lot of times when we can feel that way, but God never forgets a promise. It didn't feel that way for Elijah, but that was a failure of his perspective, not a failure of God's provision. And that's what we need to come to understand is sometimes we simply have the wrong perspective. That we look at things through our lens, through our filter, it's like, God, I don't see it. So we make the accusation against God when really he's doing something that we simply didn't see. Part of Elijah's problem was that he got isolated. We need to be in fellowship with other people to assist us through the times when, when we might have a crisis of our own faith. God has made us to engage this life together with one another. He's given us one another. And it's important that we would lean into that. The Scriptures say over and over again things like love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. Why does He do that? Because we need one another. Because we were never intended to process our way through this life on our own. Now that's the tendency that we tend to have because we think we can do everything by ourselves. We don't need to rely on anybody else. I'm my own king. I can do my own thing. And besides, if I say that I need you, then that shows that I'm weak and, and nobody wants to be weak. And so we prop propagate this notion that I can do it myself. It's not just that that's nice to love one another and serve one another, it's that it's necessary. If we want to truly thrive, if we want to navigate our way through this life, well, it's our lifeblood. See, when you get isolated, you lose perspective, which is why it's important that you would be here, that you would not forsake assembling together with others, because it's together we can support one another and encourage one another. When we're down, it's together that we can build one another up and we can assist in moving one another forward and bringing people along when we might be having some sort of crisis of faith in our lives. Don't be casual with your attendance. Don't allow other distractions or, or sports or other inclinations or laziness or excuses take precedent over God's people. When you miss, it might not seem like all that much is lost, but the cumulative effect is deadly. And you probably know somebody who's certain, sort of fallen away a little bit and then a little bit more, and, and then they weren't engaged much at all, and they've got nothing surrounding them that would ever support them or pick them up or hold them accountable when situations come into their life, and now they're gone. None of us are beyond the possibility of that happening. If we fall out of this sort of pattern, Elijah got isolated and he lost perspective until God finally spoke and helped him to understand exactly what was going on and met him in the midst of his circumstance. 
Presence provides perspective, and when we have it, we can find peace in trial and hope in hardship because God never forgets a promise. But then Paul goes on and he gives us another essential in making sense of God's plan, and that's that God is at work behind the scenes. Number two, Paul imagines that people might still be processing what he's written about. Yeah, there's this remnant of Israel, and they might be processing it in such a way that would say, okay, a remnant, yeah, but that seems kind of lame, because wasn't the promise to Israel all of these people vaster than the stars of the sky or the sand on the shore? Wasn't the promise to Israel, and now you're saying, okay, there's a remnant. It's like, that kind of seems like a failure, too. Is it God that your plan A didn't really work out all that well? You've only got this little remnant, so now you're going to go to plan B, which is to include the Gentiles? Paul knows that this is probably also on their mind. It would be sort of like you really wanting to play in the pathway golf outing coming up in a few weeks, and who wouldn't want to? So you need to know about that. That's coming right up, and, and you were interested in playing in that, and you wanted to get on a team that was going to win, the winning team. And so you had an idea of who that was going to be, and you were hoping that they would invite you onto that team, um, but they hadn't invited you yet, and I come up, and I invite you to play on my team, and you'd be kind of like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'll get back to you on that, all right? And then you go to the people you want to play with, and, you're like, and you don't get on their team. They don't have a spot for you, and so you come back to me and you say, I guess I'll be on your team, all right? It's like plan A didn't work out for you, and you had sort of this backup plan that at least you can play in the outing, even though you can't be with the people that you want to be with, right? So that's kind of what's going on here, or what it would seem might be going on here, is that God couldn't quite get plan A done. He didn't get that team, and so he goes to plan B and gets this other team now of people who will come in, and so this is where the Gentiles have their opportunity to be included. But Paul says, no, no, no. It was always in God's plan to include the Gentiles. They're not plan B, they're plan A. That's what he's saying here. It's just that his plan had them coming in different stages. Stage one was when God appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into this awesome, great, big nation, and things are going to be cool, and you're going to be the leader of all of that. And for those of you who come through faith, they'll become my children. And you can read all about that covenant that was made in Genesis chapter 15. But that's plan one, that he's going to bring in Jews. But that wasn't all of it. And back here in Romans 11, now our passage, Paul's saying there was a broader plan than that. Paul just got done explaining the hardness of heart of the, on the part of these Jews that led them away from God and under God's discipline. Then he goes on, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble, the ones who fell away, had this hardness of heart, did they stumble in order that they might fall and just be judged and just be done away? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, through their falling away, through their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is the second stage of God's plan. Here's what was going on. When Paul would go into an ancient city to share the gospel, he would, that, that's the first thing that he would do. And the first place that he would go would be the Jewish synagogue. And he'd preach to the Jews who were there. Remember, he's a Jew, and uh, Jesus was born through as, as a Jew. And so he would go, and he would preach first in the synagogue, and some people would come to faith. But not everybody. 
In fact, the majority of Jews did not come to faith. So you've got a small group of people who are now believers in Jesus. And Paul now goes outside of the synagogue and he goes to other places in the city and he also preaches the gospel now to Gentiles. And a number of Gentiles come to faith as well. And so what Paul does is he starts a church in these locations that is made up of Jews and Gentiles. It is this multicultural, multi-ethnic church and it's a beautiful thing. And that's what's transpired. Now imagine if when Paul went into the city that all of the Jews responded that all of the Jews that he preached to in the synagogue came to faith in Christ. It would be a, this, this grand renewal and this grand revival that was happening there among the Jews. And that would have been cool too, but that wasn't God's plan. If that had happened, Paul's whole attention probably would have ended up focused there in the synagogue and all of these Jews who have come to faith and think this is really awesome what God is doing. And, and chances are, Never would have made it to the Gentiles, wouldn't have needed to because he had all of this response where he was. Maybe the church would never even get started. But that's not the way that it happened. It happened that some Jews responded, but most rejected. And because most rejected, the doors opened that much wider for Paul to preach to the Gentiles and for the gospel to go there. And Paul is saying, that's stage two. That was always in God's plan is what he is saying. The Gentiles are brought in in a broader and God-intended way. But that wasn't the end either. Paul says there's another stage, verse 11 again. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that they come into faith, how much more will their full inclusion mean? When the Jews come, he's saying, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. There's that word again. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? All right, what's going on here? And why all this talk about jealousy? Well, think of it like this. Imagine that you wanted to play in the Pathway golf outing in a few weeks. And who wouldn't want to play, right? And so to help you get ready for that, I start out in the lobby. I see everybody there. I start handing out golf balls to people because I've seen you play and I know you're going to need more than one. So I'm handing out these golf balls and you walk by and you're like, oh, well, if he's handing out golf balls to everybody, they must be pretty cheap, cheap golf balls. And so I'm not really interested. And then you see somebody with one of them and you realize this is a Titleist Pro V1, which if you don't know, is a really expensive, very good golf ball. And you're like, oh, I didn't know he was handing those out. And so you come back to me and you say, I I didn't realize what you were doing. I would like some of those golf balls. And at that point, I'm going to say, stinks to be you. It's too too late now. That's, That's what I'd say. But that's not what God says to the Jews. That's not what he says to the Jews. Paul said they rejected Christ, but when they saw the blessing of salvation that the Gentiles were experiencing, and when they come to realize that's what we were offered, that's what we had the opportunity to jump into, but we didn't do that, they'd be like, man, we regret what we did. We want now to get in on that. And they do in record numbers. 
we're told. Eventually, that will happen. In fact, many scholars believe that this is a reference to the time spoken of in Revelation where God saves 144,000 Jewish people who become witnesses, who share the gospel that much more broadly, and more and more people are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the big plan of God that he is highlighting. And what Paul's going to do is he goes on through the rest of this chapter, you're going to see him popping back into this idea. He's going to tell us more and more about this, or at least refer back to it. He starts here now by going on to verse 16 to use this metaphor to give a picture of God's plan. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now, this verse alone has caused a whole bunch of consternation among commentators who are trying to figure out exactly what he has in mind here. But it might be as simple as this. That what he is saying is that there is this dough. The dough is where it all begins. And that that simply is a reference to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to whom God gave access, to whom God brought favor, who come into relationship with God through their faith. And they are simply the way that the dough gets started and that ultimately is going to make its way through the whole lump. Maybe not whole lump in terms of all of Israel without exception, but that it is going to be seen flowing through the nation ultimately and one day. What we can glean from all of this back and forth where you've got some Jews who believe when Paul goes and preaches and, and then that leads to some Gentiles believing because not all the Jews did, but now the Gentiles do and, and they're coming in and increasing in numbers so that leads to more Jews coming in because they see what it is that they've missed. All of this back and forth that's going on here is just a demonstration of this point that we're trying to make that God is at work behind the scenes. We can't always understand or see everything that God's doing behind the scenes. We don't always figure all of that out on our own. But just because we don't necessarily see how it's best doesn't mean that it's not best. And that we can trust in what He is doing here. might be something going on in your life right now where you don't know how it could possibly ever work out for good. But God is at work behind the scenes. Maybe there's a circumstance where you have somebody in your, in your family that you've been praying for their salvation. And it's been years and years that you've been praying. What Paul would teach us is to not give up. Because as he's pointed out, because there might be temporary resistance doesn't mean that there's permanent rejection. So keep praying because God's always at work behind the scenes. And with that, Paul goes on to make sure that we also know this third thing, that God warns against spiritual privilege. This is a warning now. He's kind of getting in their face, and he uses another metaphor beyond the dough one to get in on this. He's talking about branches and, and roots, and he picks up on this in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, these are the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, toward the Jews, you Gentiles. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. He's telling the Gentiles, which basically includes all of us, that we were the ones, that they were the ones who were grafted into the tree. We didn't naturally belong there. We 
didn't have that as our natural inheritance. And if we go and lord it over those who do have the rightful place in the tree, it's like, where do you get off doing that? He said, we come to Christ through humility, and if that's the approach you're taking, there's a good chance you're going to be cut off from this tree that you're wanting to be grafted into. Instead, he says, you should really be grateful for the fact that we have been given access to the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish Messiah as those who were on the outside. The attitude should be one of humility and gratitude that God's grace has been extended to us. Verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. These are some of the Jews who were excluded, whose hardness of heart kept them on the outside, which gave the opportunity for others to be grafted in to the tree of God. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is again a reference back to the hardness of heart that many of the Jews had that were cut off from the tree of life in God. This is not saying that they're losing their salvation. It's an acknowledgement that they never had salvation in the first place because they were resting in the wrong thing in what they could earn and do on their own by approaching the law, which we've talked about many, many times before. They thought that they were good to go, but they weren't. And Paul is saying to the Gentiles that you too can be cut off if you're trusting in the wrong thing, which is anything apart from putting your faith completely in what Christ has done on your behalf. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Now he's talking about the Israelites. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That just means that with Christ there's always hope, but it has to start with humility, recognizing that apart from the work of Jesus that we're lost, that we don't have hope, that it's all through Him, but through Christ we can rest in the promise that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. See, he's just saying the same thing over and over again, that there's one way, and that is by grace through faith, and resting in something else is going to keep you cut off from, from the root, from the, the tree of salvation, essentially. But as you give yourself over to faith in God, then we can be grafted in, whether Jew, whether Gentile. There is the opportunity, and there will be until Jesus returns again. Then there's one more essential to understand as we try to make sense of God's plan, and it's that God is shaping a desired future. Paul wants us to understand the nature of the future God has in store, so he continues in verse 25. Look at it. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Israel not coming in gives the opportunity for the Gentiles to come. That is just saying the same thing again just in a different way. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Those are quotes from the Old Testament. You can look up where those come from. But they're quotes from the Old Testament that are clearly talking about Jesus. 
and Jesus' work in what He ultimately is going to do. Of course, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, it's prompted a lot of speculation on what that means. Some people are saying, well, when he talks about all Israel being saved here, what he's doing is he's just talking about spiritual Israel. And so all the Jews and all the Gentiles together become all of those who are going to be saved, and that's the new Israel. And that's possible but it requires us to take and interpret this word Israel in a way that Paul hasn't used it that way anywhere along to this point. He's never used Israel to refer to both Jew and Gentile together. And there's a, there's a clearer, more simpler way to look at what it is that he's saying, and that's always the first place to go in interpreting Scripture. What's the clearest and most logical understanding of what it is that he is saying? In this particular case, it would be that God is going to do a work to bring many, many more Israelites, many, many more Jews into faith in Jesus Christ. Now, from our vantage point today, as we look at the the state of, of the Jewish people and what it is that they're trusting in and not trusting in, it's like that seems way out there in terms of something that's going to happen happen, but just because it seems difficult doesn't mean that God can't do that. It may very well be why he refers to it as a mystery in verse 25 that we just read. Then he continues, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God's fulfilling this promise made to Abraham. For the gifts for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, do you hear, the, hear what he's saying? The same thing over again. Because of their disobedience, you have an opportunity. So they too have now been disobedient in order that, they, that, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy mercy. Just restating what he's been saying all along here, that he uses the Jews to reach the Gentiles and the Gentiles ultimately to reach the Jews. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. When he says mercy on all, that might cause your ears to perk up. It does for some people who think, well, he must be talking then, mercy to all, about universal salvation that everybody's saved, that it doesn't matter what happens, that ultimately God just brings everybody in. And that's what he's talking about here. But that's not what he's talking about here. It doesn't follow given what we've already seen in Romans several places and other places in the Scriptures where it talks about the fact that there is this judgment coming on sin and on sinners one day who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus. What's more likely is that people... He's saying that people from all corners, Jews and Gentiles, will be coming into faith, not that all Jews and Gentiles will be coming into faith to be saved. This is a rich chapter. There is a lot here. We've tried to speed our way through it, but yet cover the essentials of what it is that he's talking about. We can find great encouragement here, and I pray that you do. See, God clearly has a plan that he's working out step by step to draw people to himself in salvation. There are a lot of twists and turns in this, but it's not accidental. It's very intentional on his part. There's these different stages, and he's working out how it is that he chooses to work out it exactly this way or that way, and how that's the the way that it's going to allow for his grace to be extended in the most beautiful and broad way. We might not be able to see all of that and understand all of that, but again, just because we don't see how it's best doesn't mean that it's not best. 
What cannot be denied is that God is at work, even today, shaping a desired future. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose that He is working out. And we need to refuse the doubt that can come our way when circumstances can be difficult and discouraging in our lives. That we would take those and we would say, well, I guess that God has forgotten me. I guess I'm just Elijah out here all on my own, seeing all of these things transpiring, and I, God, I just don't see what you're doing. Instead of falling into the trap of saying, well, I'm throwing in the towel now on God because I don't understand it through my finite wisdom, that we might recognize the eternal plan of God that he's continuing to work out. The final chapter has not been written, and God loves to bring joy from sorrow. He loves to bring healing from pain. And there's no reason for us to conclude today that he's less involved in our lives than he was in the lives of the first century Jews or Gentiles. He was clearly working out a plan. And God loves you too. And just because you're not a nation doesn't mean that you're too small for him to be interested in. And there's something that he's accomplishing and wants to do in your life. And as we submit ourselves to his leading, as we submit ourselves in humility to rest and to wait for what he's doing on our behalf, eventually we will see how he's working all things together for good, how he is carrying on to completion the work that he has begun in us, how we can never be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. We could go on and on. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are all promises, and God has a perfect track record of keeping his promises. And you can take that as encouragement to lift you up when you feel the challenge, to give you the strength to endure when you feel the circumstances closing in on you. What is your circumstance today where you need to take on this perspective that we see here to help you through? Are you willing to rest in God until you see the fullness of what He's doing in you? Something ultimately that is going to work out better than what the plan might have been that we had in store for ourselves? I pray that together we're able and willing to rest in His goodness, to make sense of God's plan we need to recognize that he is at work behind the scenes and that he never forgets a promise. And I pray that we wouldn't as we recognize his grace and his mercy. Heavenly Father, there are so many circumstances that transpire in our lives or transpire around us in our world and and we're just sort of left shaking our heads and we don't understand why it's happening. We don't understand how you could possibly use it for good. We don't understand how it could possibly be something that is in your plan and in your grace and is according to your mercy. But Lord, we see time and time again that you're working out your perfect purposes. Lord, I would pray today that we would be willing to trust, willing to rest in who you are, who you said that you are. And Lord, this is good theory. This is good theology. But Lord, I pray for my friends who are sitting here today 
who are in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the struggle, maybe illness, maybe a diagnosis, maybe a family circumstance, maybe a broken relationship, maybe an estranged child. And the pain's great, and we've been praying for a long time. But we don't see it. And we've started to doubt. Let I pray that we would be willing to throw ourselves into relationship with others, that we would not run from those, that we would not be on an island as we try to navigate our way through the pain, that we would not be in a place where we might stand like Elijah and said, I'm all alone. Everybody else has left me. I'm losing my hope. But Lord, instead, that we would engage, that we would lean into others so that we might be encouraged and built up, that we might have the opportunity to love one another and serve one another and encourage one another and pray for one another. Lord, whatever it is that's going on in the hearts and lives, those listening now, I just pray that you would give us your perspective, that you would help us to wait, resting in you, and all you desire to do on our behalf, because we know that behind the scenes, you are a God of grace, you're a God of mercy, and a God of love. And we rest in that now, even as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.